Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on Iron Man 2. My guest today in the studio is Jessica Winter. Hi, Jessica. Hello, Dana. Who is an editor at O Magazine and also a frequent Slate contributor and also a big Robert Downey Jr. fan, I understand, right? Me and the entire world. It's true. <laughs> I just think of you in particular as one because I know you've perennially pondered writing some sort of assessment and unified theory of Robert Downey for Slate. The subject is it. too daunting for me. You haven't wrapped your mind around I it yet. I can't do it. Well, can you make this just a partial one chapter in your research? And, I'll attempt. And can you start off um, giving us a little bit, and I'll, I'll chime in, but let's let's do a quick reaction first of all. Did you like Iron Man 2 overall? Recommend? Um, I didn't dislike it, but I was surprised because I'm disposed to like the movie a lot, I think, and I, I loved the first one and, you know, my feelings about Mr. Downey, and I just felt kind of over, uh, underwhelmed by this one. I think it had a lot of the familiar symptoms of sequelitis, sort of, you know, too much but not enough, you know, too many characters trying to cram in too much, but also not really filling out any of those those outlines, whether they be you know, set pieces or characters or plot points. Um it just turned up the volume on the first one in ways that kind of became tiring. <laughs> it quite literally turned up the volume. I mean, in terms of, I, we saw it on an IMAX screen last night, and I actually at a certain point took out my head, my ear, earbuds and put them in my ears, not connected to anything, just as some means of blocking some of the sound. It definitely has that blockbuster level of, uh, of stimuli swamping. There's at least two points where the floor rumbled beneath us. Um, it felt like a subway train or something. So you know, it was an impressive feat of sound design, if nothing else. <laughs> if, if eardrum shattering is, right. is the point of sound design. So, so let's talk about some of the things that it has too much of in terms of just the, the plot and c- try to quickly walk people through the story. And we can stop and meander along the way with, with observations. But So we start out the film, and Tony Stark has just revealed at the end of the first Iron Man that he is, in fact, Iron Man, right? So his identity has been given away. And it's a couple years later, I believe, and we find ourselves at the Tony Stark Expo, which is this huge, apparently year-long sort of World's Fair type event that actually happens on the World's Fair uh, grounds in Flushing, Queens. And um, and Tony Stark arrives in his suit as Iron Man to put on this very glitzy show with, with the Ironettes, who are sort of like the Rockettes. And do you want to take it from there? Yeah, it, it does. You do wonder how they're going to fill out a year of the Stark Expo, because it seems as though the Stark Expo is about celebrating Tony Stark. I, I don't know how they're going to stretch that out over 12 months. But um, yes, you get a kick line of Ironettes. ACDC is blasting. It, it's kind of Vegas meets the MTV Awards kind of set up. Iron Man slash Tony Stark has the great line, never has a greater Phoenix metaphor been personified in human history, um, which is one of actually the few points in the movie where they draw that line between Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr. They did that a little bit more frequently in Iron Man, that Tony Stark and Robert Downey are these great sort of uh, comeback tales rising from the ashes of of a past life. And uh, an interesting setup that they have in the expo is that Tony Stark's father, Howard Stark, introduces the expo from a kind of beyond the grave. <laughs> they've they've picked up this old sort of early 70s footage of him speaking to the audience. And uh, the patriarch is played by Mad Men's John Slattery, Roger Sterling himself. 
And uh, while he's speaking to the crowd, um, Tony takes a chance to measure his blood toxicity backstage. And it seems as though the palladium in his heart is slowly poisoning him. So this is uh, this introduces sort of two threads in the film, one of which is the looming shadow of the patriarch and what he wanted for Tony and what he wanted for another character as well. There's two sort of looming patriarchs in the movie. And the other is Tony's mortality. He, He starts making some possibly rash decisions based on what he thinks is his um, looming death. There, once again, I saw some Downey parallels. It seemed like the uh, the relationship of, of Tony's blood toxicity measurement to, to Iron Man was was some sort of an addiction metaphor at times, and when that he was the, sort of self-destructive and throwing himself away sure. in the same way that a younger Downey did. Yeah, I mean, when you see blood toxicity, you know, something else might come to mind, you know, even if it were another actor. And then I think we skip ahead to a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing. And and the sort of jumping from set piece to set piece kind of gives you an early indication of just how much this movie is is trying to do. And uh, we have Gary Shandling as a senator who is in bed with uh, Justin Hammer, a uh, weapons manufacturer who um, is kind of the beta to Tony's alpha and is played by Sam Rockwell, who I know you're a big fan of. Well, I just I thought that was one of the outstanding performances in the movie. It's it's somewhat of a weak part, but uh, Sam Rockwell just steals every movie he's in. He's so great. I don't know why Sam Rockwell's not a bigger star, and maybe he will start to be after this movie. You know, I think he's not a bigger star because he's so... Well, I mean, one theory could be that he's so good at being unlikable and a little repellent and a little sleazy, and he's so good at inhabiting that kind of part that it, it you know, maybe... Uh, it, it keeps him from from getting other roles or something. But no, I mean this this character was just built for him. He's he's great in the part. Did you see Moon, that Duncan Jones movie that he was in last year, where he I plays did. two two separate roles? I mean, I guess it's sort of true that he was pushing the unlikability barrier at times there, but he was also just so so moving and so good in that movie. I thought, it's yeah, a tour de force. It was an underseen movie. I think more people should check it out. Check yeah, it out, everyone. Definitely Listeners, go watch Moon. But so so back to Iron Man. So let's talk about the uh, the villain because this movie does have, I think, a pretty outstanding villain. And even if he's sort of poorly used, Mickey Rourke plays the villain whose name is Ivan Vanko. Is that his name? Uh, Ivan Vanko, yes. You've got the Russian yes. guy's name in front of you. And he um, <laughs> and he does the full-on Russian accent. He does the full-on Mickey Rourke immersion. He's almost too real for the movie. He seems to be playing in a different register than all of these, these uh, campy funny performances around him and that really worked for me. I actually love the scenes with Mickey Rourke. I just wish that he'd been integrated into the into the story better. You're right. He sort of stands apart from the story. And, and he's literally isolated away in a cell for much of the movie. So he's this this Russian physicist supervillain who's also like Tony Stark, the son of a great physicist. Um uh, who was who was his father's archenemy, or who was in cahoots with his father? I can't remember now the whole father backstory. It's a little confusing. They find both fathers' names on a set of blueprints. Uh, his his father defected to the United States from Russia, but then was later deported on charges of espionage. And then his son, the Mickey Rourke character, went to prison for selling plutonium to Pakistan. I mean, there's there's this whole backstory that's sort of rushed through a little bit. 
but at, at one point, Stark and, and Vanko seniors were uh, uh, colleagues of some kind, it seems. And so now their two sons wind up by the middle or so of this movie being the new arch enemies because Mickey Rourke shows up at this Monaco car race that Tony Stark has suddenly decided to enter at the last second, just showing up with his race car. He's apparently pulling ahead in the international building a super guy suit race. And so he appears on the Monaco track in his own super suit with these strange sort of electrical whips and starts to create havoc in the in the car race. That's right. And, and I don't know if he knew that Tony would just spontaneously decide to join this race because it's his timing and it seems to be perfect for that. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there is this whole backstory, but Ivan and Tony don't really know each other and they don't really have a direct relationship with each other per se. I mean, uh, Mickey Rourke wants to take down, you know, Stark Industries. He hates Tony Stark as kind of a personification of Stark Industries and, and his, as his uh, father's son. But, you know, Tony's never heard of the guy. And the first time we we see him, he's, you know, landed on a racetrack in Monaco with his sort of metallic exoskeleton and these lightsaber whips, you know, attached to his hands, as you said, and, you know, just trashing cars. And, you know, he strips uh, Tony's car of its doors and pepper pots and the driver sitting in there shrieking as they're fighting. And there's actually quite a lot of dodgy CGI in that scene. At one point, Tony just sort of Pratt falls into this kind of vaporous hologram of fire. It's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of chaotic. But um, but that's their first sort of encounter with each other. And, and it, it, I think it's something that doesn't surprise Tony so much as it just leaves him dumbfounded. And it's, well, this, I think, I think you agree with me, is, is a weakness of the movie that, as alive as Mickey Rourke's performance might be, there's almost no meeting between, there's, there's very very few scenes in which Robert Downey Jr. and Mickey Rourke have any screen time together. And when they do, as you say, they're generally encased in mechanical exoskeletons, which to me, and this is just me again beating my superhero drum, and I'm sure all my <laughs> listeners are really sick of it, but as soon as someone's face becomes covered with a metal mask of some kind or resin or whatever it is, then I don't care about the story anymore. It just becomes like a video game, and there's just mm-hmm. way too much clank-clank in this movie. But I sort of felt the same way about the first one, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think... If I remember correctly, they only the the hero or the antihero and and his nemesis really have one scene together that isn't mediated by clank clank technology, and that's when Tony goes to visit Ivan in the Monaco uh, jail cell. And um, like you said before, they they really do seem like emissaries from two completely different movies. I mean, um, they're, they're they're acting in different registers, um, and it's it's a short scene. And I, just speaking for myself, I, I wish that there was more of that. I wish there was more. Of, of Downey and Rourke um, sitting in a room together having it out or, or something that, you know, didn't have the clang-clang. Well, what's that, I think what sets the first Iron Man apart, I mean, aside from just the cosmic power of Robert Downey Jr.'s charm, was the fact that there was relatively little clank-clank. Mm. And there was also a lot of attention to engineering and a lot of time spent watching Robert Downey build and, and learn to build his suit. And this this movie has relatively little of that of that nerd insider um, building kind of 
kind of seen. And I, I, lo- I love that stuff when it happens. You're absolutely right. I mean, one of the essential core pleasures of the first one was hanging out with Tony Stark in his man cave, his cave of science, you know, when he um, would be figuring things out and brainstorming and talking to Jarvis and bitching at his robots and just figuring things out and occasionally bantering with people. The first movie, it's very congenial company, the movie. I mean, it's, it's a nice movie to just hang out in, 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 in certain pockets of it. And I think in this, in this one, I think it's an hour and 15 minutes or so before you really get to see Tony sit down and try to figure something out. And that's when he God, what does he do? He he builds a, a particle accelerator or something in in his shop, and he I don't know particularly deft use of a wrench or something, and just creates a new element. I, I can't quite figure out what it is he did, but I enjoyed watching him do it. You know, sort of absurd feats of creativity and an ingenuity. I think you know that's why we go to see the Iron Man and, and involving a significant amount of hardware too. I mean, yeah. a, great, a great thing about that scene is that it starts with him drilling a hole in a cement floor. <laughs> so it's not it's not high tech. It's not that he's moving holograms around as he also does in the movie, but that's he's right. really just digging in and building stuff. That's right. So our podcast and all Slate podcasts are sponsored by Audible.com, which is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. They have some ridiculous number, 60,000 titles to choose from. And the one that we recommend for this week, because we sort of went scraping through our free association barrel of um, books about physics, and I tried to find a book read by Robert Downey Jr., but they don't actually have one, but they do have... Uh, many books by Richard Feynman, the well-known physicist and lecturer and um, and writer, science writer, who's now passed away, but who was a very beloved and popular uh, science writer and professor. And uh, the one we're going to recommend for this week is called Six Easy Pieces, Essentials of Physics Explained by Its Most Brilliant Teacher. And I chose that one because it was read by Richard Feynman himself. So um, if you want to try to understand how Robert Downey Jr. builds his, his own element to power his uh, super <laughs> battery, maybe Feynman has some answers. <laughs> Our deal with Audible, as always, is that if you sign up for a one-book-a-month subscription through our URL, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you'll get a credit good for one free audiobook, which you get to keep even if you cancel your subscription during the 14-day trial period. And that address, again, is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. All right, let's wrap up a little bit by talking about the, the women in the movie. Um, the first Iron Man movie had as its principal female intrigue uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Pepper Potts, who's um, his, I guess in the first movie you would call her his assistant, right? His his sort of um, executive secretary or something like that. In this movie, she's actually upgraded to the CEO of Stark Industries. Right. And uh, a, a post that she ends up resigning at the end of the movie because of the incredibly stressful week that she had as, <laughs> as CEO. Um, <laughs> but um, I wanted to know what you thought about about. Gwyneth about that character, and also the new female character who enters in this installment, which is Scarlett Johansson's character, Natalie Rushman. So they, they, there's kind of now a dichotomy of you know two women in the Iron Man universe. Yeah, and I, I think that might be another symptom of its sequelitis, sort of doubling up more and more of everything all the time, um, and not really fulfilling those ambitions, because neither woman really has a whole lot to do. I mean, Pepper Potts spends a lot of time shrieking and wringing her hands and being so stressed out all the time and you know Gwyneth Paltrow is a terrific actress and you know she had some some nice scenes in the first movie so she felt she felt a little wasted although lovely as always 
Scarlett Johansson's role is is a little bit richer. She comes in as this assistant, but she's really an, an operative for Nick Fury, uh, played by Samuel Jackson. Um, yet another setup for the Avengers movie, I guess. And uh, she has a pretty cool kick-ass uh, scene where she takes down about 12 of Justin Hammer's security guards toward the end of the movie. But I mean, Although that scene was filmed with a strange process effect that bothered me the entire time I was watching it. It was blown out and super sped up, and it was almost like they were trying to cloak something. It, it, there was something odd about how it was filmed. I, I felt like I couldn't see it properly. But, I mean, to me, the most fascinating thing about her character is that she would put her hair up to go to the office, but she would take it down to kick the bad guy's asses. I would think it would be the other way around. <laughs> and the fact that I was focusing on that might be a good indication of how <laughs> underwritten some of the characters How were. little sense her character actually made. You had an interesting observation um, before we started taping about, about Robert Downey's lack of chemistry with actresses and the fact that although he's such a charming actor and has such screen presence that you feel like he can never connect as a romantic lead. I think that's true. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule. I think some people would make an argument that he, you know, had some great chemistry with, say, Heather Graham and Two Girls and a Guy. But, yeah, I mean, as you said, the chemistry that he has is with the audience or maybe, you know, a kind of platonic chemistry with, with uh, uh, people that he's bantering with. I mean, certainly anyone who's as gifted at ad-libbing with him can have great chemistry with Robert Downey. But somehow he... he often doesn't connect with his leading ladies. And I, I think that is the case here, too. But to its credit, the movie kind of acknowledges that because at the very end, Tony Stark and Pepper Potts have a little make-out session and Don Cheadle, uh, as as Rhodey Rhodes, is is watching from afar. And he's, what does he say? You look like two seals fighting over a grape, which is cruel, but not entirely inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's had some amazing chemistry with her leading men, so I, th- I think it might be sort of the flaw in the rug that is Robert Downey Jr. It seems like you're a bigger Gwyneth Paltrow fan than I am, but that's another whole conversation. <laughs> so do you want to just briefly discourse on, on the je ne sais quoi of Robert Downey, since that's what I invited you in for, because of your, your Downey know-how? Well, he, I don't know what I could say that that hasn't been said by so many other admirers. I mean, he's an amazing ad-libber. He has this amazing charisma and energy that's completely contagious. And I do think it's contagious to the people he's working with. I can think of, you know, any number of movies uh, where he's been with other actors and actresses that I haven't really been drawn to in other movies. But somehow he kind of elevates the proceedings. I think he... I think he galvanizes filmmakers and, and other performers in a way that's really exciting to watch. And I think this movie did not serve those those skills and those gifts very well. The movie's very fragmented. It, it never really gave any scene or idea or character enough time to just develop and unfold. And I think as a performer, he needs that kind of space to to riff and move around and change the energy in the room and and this this movie didn't really grant it to him um i mean particularly not to belabor the point uh you know between him and and rourke there was no heft or blood or musculature to that uh meeting of the performers and, and that was kind of disappointing 
the larger problem with the movie, I think, is that like lack of not gravitas. It's a comic book movie. It's a yeah, it's a it's a cheerful affair. It's not the Dark Knight where you know they're going to blow up Maggie Gyllenhaal or something. Like you know that the villain is going to be defeated. You know the hero is going to win, and everyone's going to be happy at the end. But it, it just had this kind of tossed off quality to it this rush uh this rushed tossed off quality that maybe is a testament to the sort of sort of cheerful offhandedness of the first movie that that kind of offhandedness that kind of you know at at the end of the movie uh uh there's a big uh, blowout fight between Mickey Rourke and Don Shadle and uh, and Robert Downey Jr. and these hundreds of drone robots. And afterward, and you know how it's going to turn out and the hero is going to win, but afterward, Don Shadle and Robert Downey sort of say to each other, hey, good job, man. And it, it's almost like they were in a touch football game that got a little rowdy, <laughs> but it all turned out like the stakes are so low throughout the whole movie that it, it was hard to get engaged with it. Well, as long as it's called the spoiler special, we should spoil one big thing, which is that there's a little treat if you wait till the end of the credits, which I did because I wanted to see the music credits, but <laughs> but at the very end of the credit sequence, um, we get a little preview of what's going to happen, of course, in the next Iron Man movie, and if you happen to be a comic book fanatic out there, you'll be excited to know that. Do you want to do the reveal? The reveal, which was a mystery to me until my uh, viewing companion explained it, was Thor's hammer. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And and basically that means that Thor is going to be a character in the next... Because there's going to be so many fanboys writing me notes right now. I don't know what Thor's hammer means. We're going to be crucified for this. (laughs) These two clueless girls talking about the big crush they have on Robert Downey Jr. And they don't know anything about these comic books. Uh, yeah, it, it was exciting to a lot of the people that I saw the movie with. Out in the desert, they discover Thor's hammer in some kind of an asteroid hole or archaeological <laughs> dig site or something like that, which I guess means that that's going to be the villain for the next movie. So there you go. It's you exciting. heard it here. All right, Jessica, thanks a lot for coming in for this Slate Spoiler Special. Thank you, Dana. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply